The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of 1 Peter. And today, the next passage we come to is 1 Peter 1, 6-9. For context, though, I'll begin reading in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray this morning. Father, we pray, according to Isaiah 55, that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, God, so would your word be this morning. And as the passage says, it would not return to you empty, but would accomplish that which you purpose and succeed in the thing for which you sent it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A lot of people have a view of Christianity that's very duty-oriented. They believe that being a Christian is mainly about following certain, teaching, following certain teachings and obeying certain rules regardless of whether we want to or not. <laughs> After all, the Bible does instruct us to live in a certain way, right? And so Christians must be people who set aside their own desires in order to do what God tells them to do. You might compare it to the kinds of interactions that I'll sometimes have with my kids, especially the younger kids. Uh, There are times when my kids will tell me that they don't want to do something that I've told them to do. Maybe I've told them to clean up their toys or do a certain chore or finish their dinner, and uh, they'll kind of push back a little bit and tell me that they don't want to do that. So sometimes in response... I'll say, half joking, but half not joking, guys, it's totally fine that you don't want to do 
you know, clean up your toys or whatever. You don't have to want to do it. You just have to do it. <laughs> and yet, as convenient as that might be for getting things done around my house and teaching my kids to be responsible, that's not at all a good picture of the way God interacts with us. If you read the Bible, that's, you discover that's not the kind of life that God invites us to live. I appreciate the way John Newton expresses it. As some of you may know, John Newton was the author of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, and also wrote these words as the stanza to another song back in the 1700s. He said, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. So according to Newton, there was a time when our pleasure and our duty weren't at all the same. They were opposite of one another. We took pleasure in sin, but knew it was our duty to obey God. But after we see his beauty, that is the beauty of Christ, our pleasure and duty become one and the same. They're joined to part no more. Jesus captures our heart with the result that we're so grateful for the way he's saved us and the grace he's shown us that we just want to live for him. It pains us to even think about doing something that would grieve him. We want to live in a way that brings him glory and take great delight in doing so. There's no separation between pleasure and duty. And so Christianity isn't about suppressing your desires and following a bunch of rules that you don't really want to follow so you can avoid getting on God's bad side. It's rather about seeking the incomparable joy that's found in God and in a close relationship and a life of close communion with him. In reality, the problem with most people isn't that they're seeking too much joy or too much pleasure, but that they're actually satisfied with far too little. Perhaps you've heard this quote from C.S. Lewis before. It's a famous one. He writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, he says. And so our problem is that we seek too much pleasure or too much joy. It's rather that we don't seek nearly enough. We content ourselves with the cheap thrills of this world and the fading pleasures of sin when God offers us infinite joy and infinite pleasure in him. 
Right? Lewis compares us to that ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Just like that child, we are far too easily pleased. And one of the passages where we see just how central that joy is to the Christian life is in our main passage of 1 Peter 1, 6-9. through 9. To remind you again of the context, Peter's just talked about the living hope that Christians have of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Peter then writes in verse 6, In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Peter also writes in verse 8 that though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So notice here how matter-of-factly Peter makes these statements. Notice that he's not telling his readers to have joy. Instead, he's stating it as a simple fact that they already have joy, even though Peter's not even with them and is writing from a location that's about 1,400 miles away from them. He states with complete confidence that they have joy. Having joy in this passage isn't a command. It's just a given. And so the main idea of this passage is that joy is an essential component of the Christian life. Again, joy is an essential component of the Christian life. And many times we assume that joy is sort of an optional extra for the Christian, like maybe an enhancement for the Christian life. And yet that's simply not what we find taught in the Bible. In addition to what Peter writes in our main passage, consider Luke 2.10. Good Christmas passage. We're coming up to Christmas in not too long. Well, here an angel appears to a group of shepherds and announces Jesus' birth to them and says to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's what the message of Jesus is. Not, not burdensome news that brings great demands, but good news that brings great joy. In addition, consider what Paul writes in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So again, just like in our main passage, what we have here isn't a command, but a simple statement of fact, right? And that fact is that the Holy Spirit produces certain qualities in a person. That's what Paul means when he refers to the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about the results of the Holy Spirit being within a person's heart. If someone has the Holy Spirit, they'll have these qualities. And as we can see... One of the qualities Paul lists is joy. 
So that's why we can say with confidence that joy is an essential component of the Christian life. Now, you might wonder at this point, what about the times when our lives are difficult? What about the times when life just doesn't seem to be going very well? Are we still supposed to be joyful then? Fortunately, we find the answer to that question as we continue on in our main passage. In verse 6, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The beautiful thing about the joy found in Jesus is that it's incredibly durable. As Peter says, we'll have this joy, we can still have it even when we're grieved by various trials. So there are times when joy is mingled with grief. It is possible to experience both joy and grief at the same time. And that might sound a little strange at first, but there are actually plenty of situations in which people experience two vastly different emotions at the same time. For example, on my wedding day, I was both nervous and excited. And also as I see my children getting older, I'm very happy to see them learning and developing and progressing, but I'm also kind of sad, you know, that, that some of the cuteness of their younger years is gone. So there are plenty of circumstances in which we experience two conflicting emotions at the same time. And that's what Peter's describing here. Joy is an essential component of the Christian life, but there are times when joy is mingled with the grief we experience in the midst of various earthly trials. Yet we understand that those trials are only temporary. Look what Peter says in the verse. He states that it's only for a little while that we're grieved by various trials. When you compare the trials that we experience in this life to the glories we'll experience in the next, there really is no comparison. Even if we suffer the effects of something for maybe 50 years, let's say, in our earthly pilgrimage, what's 50 years even in light of eternity? Right? That, that's the point Peter's making here. And Peter then reminds his readers that not only are their trials temporary, they also have a purpose. He states, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary, Peter says. That means God only allows trials into our lives when they're necessary. He only allows us to suffer when that suffering serves a purpose. Like there's no such thing as wasted suffering. You kind of like when a, maybe a child gets a splinter in their finger and the parent has to go and fetch a pair of tweezers and remove that splinter. Right? Removing a splinter can be a rather painful process. It requires a lot of poking and prodding and you know, maybe even a little digging. It's not a 
particularly enjoyable experience, that's for sure. Uh, for a younger child, it, it might even make him cry. However, it's necessary. And of course, the parent doesn't poke or prod the child's finger any more than is needed. It's not like they get the splinter out and then just continue poking and prodding just for the fun of it. Instead, they do the bare minimum of poking and prodding, only what's necessary to get that splinter out. Likewise, God doesn't enjoy seeing us suffer. He loves us. And so like any loving parent, he only allows the suffering into our lives that's absolutely necessary in order to accomplish his own perfect purposes. And that's one of the reasons why we're able to have joy, even in the midst of suffering, is because we understand that suffering is not only temporary, but also that has a purpose. However, even apart from that, we're still able to rejoice because the joy found in Jesus, the kind of joy Peter's speaking about in verse 6, it's rooted not in the transient circumstances of this life, but rather in the eternal glories of heaven. It's therefore what we might call a transcendent joy, a joy that transcends whatever circumstances that we might be facing in this life. And so that makes it radically different than the kind of situational happiness that most people are more familiar with, uh, such as the kind of happiness that you might experience maybe when you purchase a new vehicle or get that new promotion at work or whatever it is. In fact, I'd like to highlight a few of the key differences between the transcendent joy spoken of in this passage and the situational happiness people often experience. Whereas the situational happiness is fleeting and momentary, transcendent joy is constant and enduring. Whereas situational happiness is rooted in our constantly changing circumstances, transcendent joy is rooted in the unchanging realities of the gospel. Whereas situational happiness is incredibly fragile, transcendent joy is wonderfully durable. Whereas situational happiness is shallow and superficial, transcendent joy is deep and satisfying. And finally, whereas situational happiness evaporates in the midst of suffering, transcendent joy is present even in the midst of suffering. You know, a great illustration of this transcendent joy is the joy David writes about in Psalm 4. David wrote this psalm while he was experiencing some type of difficulty in his life and compares himself to those who aren't devoted to God. And he says to God in Psalm 4, 7, that you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Again, you have put more joy in my heart than they, the ungodly, have when their grain and wine abound. So David had more joy in the midst of his suffering 
than the ungodly had in the midst of their prosperity. Kind of bring that over to today. We might say that because of the joy Jesus imparts, a Christian's lowest point in life is still higher than a non-Christian's highest point in life. And so if you're searching this morning for a joy that's rich and real and durable, just know that that joy is found exclusively in Jesus. Then continuing on in our main passage, Peter mentions several things that fuel our joy. So he's just stated in verse 6 that we have joy, even in the midst of suffering. And now in verses 7 and 8, he mentions several things that fuel this joy. If you picture our joy as a campfire, the fire is already pretty hot because of everything Peter's written about so far, especially back in verses 3 through 5 about uh, our living hope of a heavenly inheritance. But Peter now throws even more logs on the fire, if you will. He begins in verse 7 by talking about the fact that the trials we face in life have a silver lining and that they show our faith to be genuine. He says to his readers that they've been grieved by various trials, quote, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So just like fire tests the purity and the genuineness of gold, the trials we face test the genuineness of our faith. The, the things we experience, the, the difficulties and trials we face in life put our faith to the test. That's actually what the word trials refers to in the first place. Like when someone's put on trial in a court of law, let's say, the point of that trial is to determine something and get to the bottom of something. Like, is there enough evidence to convict this person of a crime or not? Likewise, Peter says that the trials he just referred to in verse 6, right, that word was from verse 6, the trials he just referenced have a similar function in our lives. They bring to light the true nature of something and enable us to reach a verdict, so to speak, about our faith. Is our faith genuine or not genuine? And the reason that's such a critical question is because the genuineness of our faith determines where we'll spend eternity. The Bible is very clear that it is through faith in Jesus that we're saved from the penalty our sins deserve. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we're not saved by good works, we do, but rather by trusting in what Jesus has already done. How he came to this earth, lived a perfectly sinless life, died on a cross to take the punishment for our sins, and then resurrected from the dead three days later. Jesus has already accomplished everything 
That was necessary to secure our salvation. And it's as we put our trust in him and in what he's done on our behalf that we experience this salvation and enter into a relationship with God and have hope for eternal life. And so the genuineness of our faith means everything. Only those whose faith is genuine will spend eternity with God. And there are a number of ways the genuineness of our faith is tested, but one of them is through suffering. If your faith doesn't withstand the trials that you face in life, it's not genuine faith. By contrast, though, if we go through something difficult and our faith remains intact, well, that's a very good indication that it is genuine faith and therefore provides us with wonderful occasion to rejoice. Then another log Peter throws onto the fire of our joy is what he says at the end of verse 7. He talks about the genuineness of our faith being found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ refers to the time when Jesus, well, is revealed. The time when he returns to this earth to judge his enemies and deliver his people. And if we have genuine faith, Peter says, we'll actually receive praise and glory and honor at that time. So Jesus will return and commend us for the faith we've shown and the life we've lived. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 25 in what's often called the parable of the talents. He tells a story of a master who had three servants and who went away for a period of time. When the master returned, he found that two of his servants had done what he expected them to do. And so the master said to each of those two, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And it's that same kind of thing that Peter's referring to in verse 7 of our main passage. We can rejoice in our anticipation of receiving praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. And yet, of course, no matter how much praise and glory and honor we receive from Jesus, none of it even comes close to the ultimate joy of our future. And that is seeing Jesus face to face and beholding his glory. And so adding one more log to the fire, Peter goes on to talk about that. Having just mentioned the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 7, Peter goes on in verse 8 to talk about the joy we have as we anticipate that revelation. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So even though we don't yet see Jesus, we love him. We delight in him and desire to be with him. His blessings are great, but being with him is even better. And because we love Jesus so much, the thought of being in his presence for all eternity 
causes us, as Peter says, to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The joy is inexpressible in that it's so great. It's beyond anything words can express. It's also filled with glory. We're not talking about an ordinary joy here, but a glorious joy. And according to Peter, this joy comes from believing in him. That is believing, among other things, that Jesus is coming back and that we'll see him face to face. And so notice here how love and belief and joy are all connected. We love Jesus and believe in him and everything he taught, like the fact that he's coming back, and therefore are filled with joy as we think about seeing him one day. Kind of like a, maybe a soldier who's deployed to some faraway nation, loving his family, and therefore rejoicing at the thought of seeing them at the end of his deployment. He loves them and believes he'll see them again, and therefore has joy. That's the joy we have as we think about Jesus, a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter says. And so going back to the main idea, joy is an essential component of the Christian life. Yet the joy that we possess as Christians isn't just a joy in what we anticipate for the future. It's also a joy in what we experience in the here and now. Verse 9 makes that clear. And Peter's just said in verse 8, remember that we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then, writes in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, like I explained a few weeks ago, that word salvation in this context refers not to our conversion when we became a Christian, but rather to our final salvation or the consummation of our salvation in the future when we enter heaven. And yet, Peter says, we're actually already obtaining a foretaste of that final salvation right now. Peter tells his readers that they're obtaining, present tense, right, right now, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what does that mean? Well, there are several ways we get a foretaste of heaven in our present lives, but undoubtedly the greatest way is in our enjoyment of God. Even though we don't currently see God with our physical eyes, we nevertheless do see him with the eyes of faith. And we also experience his presence in our hearts and actually have a relationship with him. And as every true Christian understands, there is no joy in this world like the joy of knowing God and being close to God. I appreciate the way David expresses it in Psalm 16, 11, where he says to God that you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your presence, right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
And in Psalm 73, 25 and 26, the psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? Speaking to God. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So God is more glorious, more lovely, more desirable, and more satisfying than anything else in this entire universe. And we don't have to wait until we get to heaven to enjoy him. Like, we can enjoy him right now. We can know him through the Bible and commune with him in prayer and have our relationship with him enriched through our fellowship and interactions with other Christians. The incomparable joy of knowing God is one that we're meant to experience in the here and now. In fact, as we've said, it's an essential component of the Christian life. Yet at the same time, it's also true that we find ourselves sometimes having to fight for this joy. It's something we always possess in some measure, but it's also something we've got to pursue. We've got to stoke the fire of our joy in Christ. Otherwise, there may be times where we find ourselves lacking in joy, sometimes even severely lacking in joy. And that's just not a good place to be. In fact, it's actually a somewhat dangerous place to be. It reminds me of a method that coal miners used to use in order to detect the presence of carbon monoxide in the mines. Of course, nowadays they have all kinds of fancy technological equipment to do that for them. But back in the early days of coal mining, they actually relied on canaries to alert them to the presence of carbon monoxide. See, a canary is a very small bird and is therefore very sensitive to air quality. And so the coal miners would bring like, like a cage of canaries down into the mine with them. And as long as the canaries were happily singing and chirping away, the miners knew that the air of the mine was safe. However, if the canaries were to stop singing their happy song and perhaps get a little wobbly and even fall to the floor of their cage, well, then the miners would know that something is wrong. Similarly, one of the earliest warning signs that we're not in a good place spiritually is that we have trouble detecting any joy in our hearts. Now, obviously, the joy we have in Christ is always in a state of waxing and waning, right? That's just a, a, a normal thing every Christian experiences, right? Our, our joy is sometimes present in greater measure during some days than it is other days. So I'm not saying we need to be alarmed if a few days go by and, you know, we're just kind of lethargic and just not feeling it. But the longer that period of diminished joyfulness continues, and the less joy we're able to discern in our hearts, the more concerned we should be. So very briefly, let me suggest some questions uh, that might be good to ask yourself 
whenever you find your joy in Christ diminished for a substantial period of time. Kind of like you might troubleshoot your computer if your computer wasn't working properly. Hopefully these questions can help us troubleshoot a joyless heart. The first question to ask yourself is, have I been living in any unrepentant sin? That is a pattern of sin in life that you're not making much effort to repent of. I don't know of anything that'll steal your joy in Christ faster than deliberately disobeying Jesus. Then second, ask yourself, how substantial has my Bible intake been lately? The joy that we have in Christ is a joy that's fueled by the truths of the Bible, especially truths about who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. As we've already said, those truths are like logs on a fire. Without the logs, the fire dies down. Third, how meaningful has my prayer life been lately? Think about it. If God is the source of our joy and prayer is the way we commune with God, well, then we shouldn't really be surprised when prayerlessness leads to joylessness. Then fourth, is there a situation in which I'm not trusting in God's sovereignty? The anxiety that we experience from forgetting that God's in control of a certain situation and that he's working through it all to accomplish his perfect purposes, that anxiety can very easily suck the air out of the room, so to speak, and severely diminish our joy in Christ. Number five, have I shared the gospel with anyone lately? It's amazing how sharing the gospel with someone else often has a profound effect on our own hearts as well. Like as we're describing to someone else the wonders of God's grace, what we often find ourselves being captivated all over again by the wonders of his grace as well. Some of my most joyful times is when I I just finish a good conversation about Jesus, even with someone who doesn't yet believe in him. It's kind of like maybe jump-starting a car. You know, having a good conversation about Christ can jumpstart our joy in him. And then finally, a sixth question to ask yourself is, has my life become too much about me and not enough about others? In Acts 20, verse 35, we learn a very insightful principle that Jesus taught. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So have you been giving to others? Have you been generous with your time, generous with your finances, generous with the level of emotional care and concern that you exhibit toward other people? Or have you been kind of stingy and lived a life that revolves almost exclusively around yourself and your own cares and comforts and convenience? So hopefully those are some helpful questions as we seek to 
diagnose joylessness at times in our hearts. 